How many of you went to the mall yesterday? Anybody brave enough? I went by the mall yesterday. And then on my return, I went away from the mall on my return. Uh, a lot of those last minute shoppers. How many of you like to shop on Christmas Eve? Anybody here? All right, keep your hands up. These are the insane people, all right? Just take a note. But, uh, you know, the hustle and the bustle of the holiday season is, is, is really fastly upon us. And people do crazy things in trying to get everything ready, the right presents, the right gifts, you know, the food and the family and all of the, the, the times of getting together with all that. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy how much in a hurry we often are to celebrate uh, one of the best, actually the best holiday season of the year, really, Christmas. And uh, so we all know what it's like to be in a hurry, don't we? And it's only a couple of days from now, if you don't get your mail out right now, those Christmas cards, if you don't get them out pretty soon, they're not going to get there before Christmas. So you better hurry up. And uh, this kind of reminds me of a lady, you know, who was in a hurry at Christmas, and she knew that she only had a couple of days, you know, to get those cards out. Man, matter of fact, the, day, the deadline for that day to get the cards out before Christmas was that day. And she quickly, in a hurry, went to the Hallmark store and looked through a whole bunch of cards and found 50 that were identical. She liked the front, and so she purchased them, ran home, addressed them very quickly, signed them, and sent them off. She had one left of the 50. And she tucked it away, and she had her holiday celebration. And following the holiday celebration, as they were you know, cleaning up all the stuff, she found that card, and she admired it one more time, as she had admired it as she purchased it in that store. And uh, this time, she decided she would open it. And when she opened it, she read the line, this card is just to say, a little gift is on the way. <laughs> 49 gifts she was going to have to buy. You know... Christmas is not a little gift. It is the greatest gift you will ever receive in your life. And today we're going to unwrap the third aspect of this beautiful gift called Christmas in opening and addressing and understanding what it means for Jesus to be addressed today as our eternal Father. Our eternal Father. Where have we been so far? Well, first of all, we have talked about Jesus being the name above every name. And we've been describing him as that name and what all of that means for us, wrapped up in this Christmas in this beautiful passage of Isaiah 9, verse 6. And we saw several Sundays ago, first of all, that Jesus Christ, wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger on that first Christmas morning, we discovered that the wait is over. The wait for our Messiah, for our Savior, has come and gone. He is presently here. For unto us, it says, a child was given unto us, a son is born. Hundreds of years earlier than that first Christmas morning, Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, promised that the Messiah would come. On that first Christmas morning, he finally arrived. And we're not awaiting the arrival of the Savior, the Messiah, or the Lord anymore. He is already presently a reality. He is already here. And so our wait is over. Salvation is possible. And salvation is available through this Messiah, this Savior that we know in Jesus 
on that first Christmas morning. So the wait is over. He is here. He is here. We learn not only is the wait over, but we've also learned that the way was clear. For in the names described in Jesus, we learn that he was wonderful counselor. He is our guide. He is the one that leads us. He is our good shepherd, and we follow in his footsteps. And he is, as the wonderful counselor, he is all wise. He possesses all of the wisdom that we could possibly ever need to lead us and guide us. And what it means by this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes placed in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem is that Jesus was, in fact, the way by which we come to not only abundant life, but eternal life. And we talked about and described how Jesus is the way, and that way is clear, the way is through Christ. We talked about then that also that the war has now been finished. For not only was he the wonderful counsel, but he is also described as the mighty God, meaning that this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes is all-powerful. He has all of the attributes of not only all wisdom, but all power. This, this Christmas gift in Jesus came so that he might die on a cross, defeating once and for all sin and Satan, crushing the enemy and conquering the enemy for us, and winning our war against sin, so that through faith in him, we might be saved. And today I want to talk about the importance of him being our everlasting father, in that now my way can be sure. I can know that I know that I know, that because he waged war on my behalf, and through my faith in him, I, through his victory, am going to win in the end. I'm going to win. I'm going to be victorious. And so I want us to sort of look at that for just a minute this morning as we take a look, first of all, at a passage. I want to do some introductions here as we sort of lay the foundation of what it means to be the everlasting father. And then we're going to go into, very briefly, uh, the, the main point about how we then know that Jesus Christ then is going to become our eternal father. So let's, let's sort of look at these two descriptives, these two adjectives about what it means for Jesus to be our everlasting father. What does it mean? How can a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes be our everlasting father? Well, you've got to define and understand the word everlasting. The word everlasting is a word that simply means the per- perpetuity of time. It means that Jesus Christ is eternal, that he was, that he is, and he will always be. There was never a moment or a point in time in which Jesus began. He has always been from the beginning, even before time. He was always with the Father, and he was always a part of the the Trinity that we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For Jesus, like God, is a part of the triune God. He is deity. He is divine. And because of that, he has all the attributes of the divine Father, and those attributes include eternity. Not only is he all-wise, not only is he all-powerful, but he is also ever-eternal. He has always existed, and he always exists. Some people think, well, you know, uh, God had had an oops moment, (laughs) and that's how we have Christmas. He decided to correct the course. Things were going the way he wanted them to go, and so all of a sudden he created Christ in this baby, and that we celebrated Christmas time, and that was the beginning of Jesus. No, Jesus has always had a beginning. In John chapter 1, verse 1, notice the description of how John describes the eternality of Jesus. He says... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light 
of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome the light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word, Jesus, was always with God. That word for word in the original language means logos. How many of you were in life group this morning? Raise your hand, keep them high. Anybody sitting next to you not in life group, invite them to life group next Sunday, all right? If you're in the same study that my wife is in, you talked about Jesus being the living word. He is the logos. He is the final revelation of God who in the living word becomes that final revelation who has all of the attributes of God displayed in the one final attribute displayed through Jesus, God incarnate. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he was preexistent. He existed before that time. But John describes him as coming down. He says in the very words of Jesus, he came down from heaven and was then placed supernaturally by the supernatural infetral fertilization of the Holy Spirit placed in Mary's womb. And he was born not only totally man, but totally God. He was God incarnate, God in the flesh. And that baby wrapped in swaddling clothes that we celebrate at Christmas time was the eternal Son of God. But not only was he eternal, but the word also, the, the adjectives here after that, the primary adjective is Father. He is eternal Father. What does it mean for Christ to be our Father? Well, a passage in John chapter 10, where Jesus is describing himself as the Good Shepherd, he defines himself as our Father. Now, the word Father simply means the originator of life. Jesus is the author of life. Not only is life found in him, but life is found through him. Not just eternal life, but also abundant life. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He not only is the author of life, but the creator of life. And only through him can we come to know life abundantly and be secured of life eternally. In Jesus' own words, in verse 17, John chapter 10, For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I, lay, that I may take it up again. No one, watch this, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down on my own accord. He willingly laid down his life on, an, on his own accord by his own will. I have authority. I have authority to lay it down. But I also have authority to take it up again. This, chain, this charge I have received, why? From my Father, who is God. Jesus had the authority not only to lay down his life when he died on that cross, but he had the authority and the power given to him by the Father to rise up from the dead. He himself rose himself up from the dead who was, who is, and who will always forever be, is the almighty God who has the power to rise up. And he has the power not only to show us the way, for he himself died on the cross to rise again, he becomes then our example, our model, by which we follow. For we through him, as we're going to see in a minute, he showed us, he is the father of life. He died first to rise again so that we then can follow his example. I asked his disciples, for one of these days, the grave is not final for us. We've had a lot of funerals this week. We've had four, I think. And, and I'm always reminded at a funeral that those bodies 
are just a shell that we occupy temporarily in this planet and that we lay them to rest, but our souls go to be with the Lord. And one of these days, the trumpet of God is going to blow and the dead in Christ will rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we'll be forever with the Lord. Forever with the Lord. So aren't you thankful that the body you're in is not your eternal body? Can I get an amen to that at least? So if you got any aches and pains, maybe some disappointments, (laughs) this is not your eternal body. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. But Jesus Christ is himself the creator of physical life. He is the redeemer of spiritual life, and he is the savior of eternal life. Apart from Jesus, you cannot know life, have life, or ever hope to have life. Christ has the power to lay it down and to raise it up again. And he has the power through faith in him to do the same for you. Now I want to take a look at one final introductory passage in a little book written by the Apostle Paul that most of you probably will have a hard time finding. It's Titus. Take your Bible and turn to Titus. You might want to look in your index, that's okay. (laughs) Uh, Whatever you may have, or if you've got one of those smartphones. It makes you appear smarter than you really are. That's why you call it a smartphone. But anyway, in Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to a a, a young man named Titus who's been given the responsibility not only to establish but to encourage the church in Crete. And he's not only writing to Titus, but he's also writing to the saints or to the elect who are part of that church. And in this letter, it's interesting, as we begin with verse 1, Paul begins to lay out the qualifications or the standards by which he is an apostle and has the right to preach or to speak the way he does to them. And so I was just going to read that in the context of verse 1, but we're really mostly interested in verse 2. Titus 1.1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, of God's elect. I know you guys sometimes have a hard time with that word elect, but it's here. For the elect. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with God goodness or godliness. Verse 2. In hope, in hope of eternal life. That word hope means expectation, expectancy. We are hoping to have eternal life. You here today as a saint, as the ones who were elected by God to receive the gift of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the elect, now have a hope that life doesn't end at the grave. You have a hope of eternal life. That's your expectation. That's your belief. That's your hope, the hope of eternal life, which God, I like this, who never lies. You lie from time to time. Gentlemen, when your wife asked you this morning, did she look good in what she was wearing, what did you say? <laughs> Ladies, when um, your husband's pretended to pay attention, you, you asked, did you hear what I say? What did he say? If you get pulled over by a police officer and he said, what's the reason for your fast speed this morning? What do you say? You know, ain't it great to know that you're in a church filled with liars? (laughs) We all fudge the truth a little bit, don't we? I mean, that's our nature. 
Uh, we, we have a hard time speaking the truth. And, 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 and don't get so pious because the reality is when you look in the mirror, you have a hard time seeing the truth about yourself because we all want to paint ourselves to be better than what we really are. <laughs> We're all sinners saved by grace. But God never lies. God never lies. In his character, he is faithful, he is trustworthy, he is always true and always speaks the truth. And when God says you have eternal life through Jesus Christ, you have it. Notice it says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised. That word promise means that he made a promise to us. A promise, it's a verbal promise written in his word, recorded in the Bible that we have in our hands. The promised word of God, a promise made by one person to another. God made a promise from himself to us when? Before the ages began. Before time. God made a promise. That if we would put our faith and trust in Christ, we would have the promise of not only eternal life, but abundant life through him. Jesus was not an afterthought. From the beginning of time, this has always been God's plan. And he has been orchestrating all the events and all the activities of human history to the point in which Jesus was born on that first Bethlehem morning in a little town called Bethlehem. And that was a part of the fullness of God's time, working out his promise to you. He saw you before the beginning of time. You think about it, God's knowledge is past, present, and future. And God saw you and knew you before you even were conceived in your mother's womb. That's the foreknowledge of God. And before time began, he saw you, and he saw your need, and he brought you to faith in Christ so that through him you could know a hope that transcends this wicked life that we're living and this deadly life that we're living so that our lives would transcend the grave and have the promise of eternal life. So what is that hope that we have? How do we possess that hope? Very, very quickly, I want to look at six things. How many men were at breakfast this morning, uh, yesterday morning? I said, we're going to look at nine things, didn't I not? We're going to look at nine things in the shepherds' lives, and I paused. And you could have dropped a pin in there. There was the disappointment on their face. Nine points about the shepherds. They thought we'd be there for an eternity. We were there, what, 10 minutes, right, guys? 15? See, I just lied. Oh, it felt like 10. <laughs> so let's look at six things that help us understand how we can possess the hope that is in Christ. Number one, the hope of eternal life is first provided in Christ. Now, I know this seems elementary, but we need to make this crystal clear because there is no hope provided outside of Jesus. Muhammad is not the answer, Buddha is not the answer. Self-edification is not the answer. The answer is provided only in Christ alone. Sounds elementary, but you got to start with the elementary things and then build on it. 
So the foundation of that is that it's provided in Christ. John 3, 14 and 15. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 3 to a, an inquirer named Nicodemus who has been struggling his whole life with this concept of salvation and eternal life. And, and, and I think Nicodemus has come to the point in his life where he's so frustrated, he doesn't seem to be able to, to believe that he's grasped it fully, that he fully understands it, much less that he possesses eternal life. And by the darkness of the night, this religious elite leader of the, of the Jerusalem temple finds his way to meet with Jesus in secret and ask him a multitude of questions. And Jesus tells him, as you know the story, you've got to be born again. And so this whole conversation begins to grow as a result of, you must be born again. And he said, well, how do I be born again? And I enter my mother's womb. And he said, no, no, you've got to be born of the Spirit. And so he begins to lay down the groundwork for eternal life. And Jesus, in that conversation, says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's referring and referencing back in the Old Testament when they were in the wilderness. And uh, the people of God began to moan and complain against the leadership. The people of God began to moan and groan against the leadership. <clears throat> I'm just... <laughs> we don't do that here. I'm just kidding. But, uh, and so because of their sin, God sent serpents. And those serpents were biting people. And people were dying. But God told Moses to raise up a serpent, a bronze serpent, and as they looked at that bronze serpent, they were healed. They were cured. They were saved. And what he's saying here is this. Notice as he brings up that illustration. He says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That word must is an imperative. He must be lifted up. Unless he is lifted up, we can't look upon him and we will not be saved. He must be lifted up. That whoever, I like that word whoever, it means anybody. Turn to your neighbor and say that means you too. The anybody, the whosoever, believes in him, you believe in him, what's the promise? That you may you will have eternal life. If you look to Jesus, you will have eternal life. John 17, 3 says, and this is the eternal life. What is the eternal life? This is an interesting little, little uh, passage kind of tucked away in John's gospel where it talks about, it's, it's the gospel in a nutshell, and it's often not referenced as a, as a gospel uh, a passage. But, it, but it's, it's filled with the gospel here. Because it said, and this is eternal life. This is the means by which we gain eternal life. This is the way in order to possess eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. How do we come to know the only true God? Through knowing Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, whom God has sent. The only way to know that you have eternal life is found in a personal knowledge, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. And there is only one way in which God provides us eternal life. And it's Jesus. And there have been so many that have negotiated that term and those conditions and that, that equation. They have, you know, well, maybe, maybe we're all climbing the same mountain just on different sides. 
And our way is Jesus, and your way may be something else, but we're all reaching the same eternal destiny. That is a lie straight from hell. For Jesus is the only way, and eternal and abundant life is only found in Christ. For apart from him, Peter said in in one of his sermons, he said, that in the name of Jesus, in his name, is the only means by which we will be saved. There is no other name by which we can be saved. So hope is provided in Christ. Number two, it's presented as a gift. It's presented as a gift. In other words, it's by grace. It's by grace. You know, I think most of us honestly come to this whole salvation experience, understanding and dependent upon grace. But too often, the longer we live our Christian life, the less grace we think we require. And so what I like to think as I look in the the mirror every morning is I am an EGR person. And you're an EGR person. Extra grace required. So turn to your neighbor and say, you're an EGR person. Because we're all extra grace required. But the longer we come into this, this discipleship walk and journey, we think somehow that, that we earn or merit or deserve something. And so we, we, we have this work ethic that we think, well, I, I'm, I'm serving you and I'm giving and I'm doing, so therefore you must bless. And, and, and we, we somehow forfeit this whole grace thing that brought us to saving grace in the first place. And Jesus reminds Nicodemus that in John 3.16, which is, is a beautiful passage, which we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son. He gave. That word gave means to ensue a loss. He gave it. He released it. He stopped claiming ownership to it and gave it to you. He gave, he released it, he gave it to you. Romans 6.23 says, for the wage of sin is death, but the, notice the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That word is not only just gift, but those two words are the same single word in the original language. It's not just a gift, it is a free gift. It's free. Now, my kids used to tell me something, you know, when they were, they were kids, said, Dad, that's free. Let's go. It's free. So, son, there's nothing free. Is there anything free? Somebody had to pay for it. So, in that sense, it isn't really free because someone had to pay for our salvation, and Jesus did. But for us to possess it, it's given freely. It cost us nothing to possess it. All right, Sheila, I'm going to give you a Christmas present. You got to stand up, though. This only woman in church almost as tall as I am. This is a buffalo. I think it's a dollar bill. It's gold. Pretty cool, isn't it? Merry Christmas. It's yours. Oh, praise the Lord. Yeah. I have one for you. No, I don't have one for everybody. 
Do, do I have it anymore? Who has it? Sheila has it. Did she do anything to deserve it? Lord, no. <laughs> I just gave it out of my kindness and generosity and love for her and appreciate it. I just, it did, she didn't do anything to earn it, to deserve it. I just gave it. She didn't expect to sit here this morning and receive anything from me, but I freely gave it to her. That's what Jesus did, uh, God did, when he gave Christ to us. He gave it freely. Now, most of us, let's be honest, we give gifts for what reason? To get in exchange. God did not give in order to get something in exchange. He freely gave it. And once he gave it, once you possess it, it's yours. It belongs to you. So this Jesus belongs to you. Number three, uh, the hope that we have in eternal life is not only provided in Christ, presented as a gift, but it's possessed, possessed by belief. It's possessed by belief. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I like the word whoever, what? Believes. Whoever puts their faith, trust, and confidence in Jesus will be eternally saved. You must believe. You must believe. John chapter 6, in Jesus' own words, verse 47, truly, truly, that's Jesus' way of saying amen. You didn't know Jesus was Baptist, did you? Amen, amen. I say to you, whoever, whosoever, believes, has eternal life. That word belief means to put your faith and trust in Christ, in the gospel message of Jesus. And once you believe, you have eternal life. I've done this once before, and you've seen this done many times. It's a chair. I believe this chair can hold me up. But until I do what? Do I affirm my belief? I rest in it. And until I do that, it's not really faith, is it? Jesus said we must believe in him, not just believe that he is the Son of God and that he died on the cross for my sin. I must actually rest in him and trust in him to take upon himself my sin against God. It's not by anything that we do, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. For by grace you are saved, through faith, and that it is not of yourselves. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. It is simply given and done for you. And it's received by possessing your faith. It's possessed by faith in Jesus. Putting your faith and trust in him. So life is, number one, provided in Christ. Number two, presented as a gift. Number three, promised. Number three, I'm sorry, uh, possessed by belief. And number three, four, it is promised as a present reality. I like what it says here in John chapter 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. Has eternal life. Not might have, 
not even hopes to have, but has eternal life. That's a promised reality. For once you come to faith and trust in Jesus and and accept him as your Savior and Lord, it is yours. You possess it. You have it. You have eternal life. 1 John 5.13 I write these things to you, John says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. That word, you may know, is one word, and it describes a completed action that has already taken place, and once it is done, it is final, and it now is a present reality. So once you place your faith and trust in Christ, all of the work that was necessary for you to have eternal life has been done, and now what you have is a present reality. You may know that you have eternal life. There are many of us in here, if we were honest this morning, we would have to admit there have been times in our lives in which we doubted our own salvation. Because we look at our actions and we look at our thoughts and we understand our feelings. And we we, we hear the enemy whisper, how could anybody think that and be saved? How could you be saved and act like that? How can you be saved and talk like that? Are you sure you're saved? Or we go to some Bible study and some communicator of what they claim to be the truth, try to convince us that once we're saved, we're not eternally secure. Because once we have it, we possess it. Which brings us to the fifth point. Not only is it promised as a present reality, but it is protected forever. It's protected forever. You cannot lose it. Some of you couldn't find your keys this morning to get to church. Some of you lose your cell phone. You put it down, you can't remember where it is. You have to call yourself to listen to the ring unless you put it on vibrate and then you're going to have a hard time finding it if you know what I'm talking about. But eternal life is not something you can possess and lose. For once it is yours, it is always yours. Again, Jesus says, as he described himself as the good shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I, who, who gives us eternal life? Jesus. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That word never is a double negative. It means that there's no circumstance, no situation that could ever rise up in which you could lose your eternal destiny. Will never perish. And no one, that no one is also a double negative, meaning that there is no one ever that has ever existed or that will ever exist or that presently exists. No sin that you've ever committed. There is no one that will ever snatch them out of my hand. The word snatch means that they're sneaking up and they're quickly trying to grab it. Unexpected of the person that has something. We've all played that game, you know, you put something here and they try to grab it and you try to keep them from doing that. And so he said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Notice the reason. My father who has given them to me is greater than all 
And no one, that again is a double negative, no one, not a single person, anything or anyone, is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why? It says here, because he is greater than all. That word greater means he's mega. He is all-powerful. And the arm and the hand of God is stronger than any of Satan's accusations, our sins, condemnations, or any individual's anything. For once you are in the hand, the strong hand of God, nothing can happen that will forfeit, lose your salvation. It would be really easy for me to stand up here and say, if you don't do this and this and this and this and this, you're going to lose your salvation and guilt everyone in here to do what I want them to do in order to gain merit and deserve salvation. It's a trick that many people try to use to manipulate people to get them to do what they say you must do in order to be saved. It's not what you do, it's what's already been done, and what's already been done has been through Jesus. And once you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you are secure in his hands, and there's nothing, nothing that anyone can do. I got a bat right here. It's an interesting bat. Uh, we had, a, had something at, uh, at First Baptist Church Santa Fe in which we had the uh, power team that was there. And the, uh, um, the power team came to our church and... Uh, we had, it says on here, we recorded it. It said that we had 144 people accept Christ and 222 total decisions. That was an incredible time, February 9th uh, through the 13th, 2000. And uh, all the guys signed it. Uh, let's see. Come up here. Yeah. Get the guy behind you, too. Tell him to come up here. Mike, why don't you come up here? Kip, come on up here. Since you picked on me earlier today. All right, I want you guys to form a line. I want everybody to grab onto this. No, down at that end. How many of you, come on, Kip. Oh, you're going to do your pinky finger. Eh? How many of you think I can keep them from taking this away from me? Got one believer. Bless your heart, brother. I love you, man. I'd go to war with you any day, a bunch of skeptics. All right, you ready? All right. <laughs> Come on. I couldn't hold on to it. Thank you, guys. I couldn't hold on to it, could I? No matter how hard I tried. I couldn't hold on to it. You don't hold on to your eternal security. You don't have the strength. You're not good enough. You can never be right enough. You can never be perfect enough. And it's interesting at funerals, when you come to funerals, and people always want to talk about the accolades of the person who died as if to justify the reason why they're in heaven. The only means by which we're saved is Jesus. He protects you forever, and his grip is stronger than mine and stronger than yours. And no matter how many times Satan pulls or sin pulls or the world pulls or you even pull, you can never, you can never break your salvation away from the grip of the Almighty 
God. Your life is eternally secure. All your questions and your doubts and your fears and your worries and your insecurities and your questions and your bad behavior and all, that doesn't really matter. Because he's got his hand on it. And you're eternally secure. And you can never, ever lose your eternal destiny. So, number six. Eternal life, number six. Bring it up on the screen, please. Is purposefully filled. There's an end, actually, a fulfillment of eternal life. We're going to close with this thought. Purposefully filled. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Behold. That means stop and listen. Paul writes, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I tell you a mystery, meaning something that is not just readily available to be known. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And that's just not in the nursery. That's in here as well. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, split second, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this imperishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. One of these days, there's going to be a great change. And that transformation is going to take place because your physical body needs a transformation in order to receive your glorified body. You can't get into heaven with the body you got. And everybody said, amen. One of these days, you're going to receive a glorified body. This physical body that you have is not going to be taken with you. It's going to be similar to what you have, but you're going to look about 33 and a half years old. You're going to be in your prime. Everybody's going to have rippled stomach, and everybody's going to know fat. You're going to be looking good. Jesus was a carpenter. He ate seed for breakfast and, and weed for lunch, and, you know, they call, them, they call them vegetables, but, you know. He was a buff guy, and when he died, he died strong. And, and when we are being transformed, we're going to be transformed into his likeness. A perfect, glorified body. A great transformation. And for me, maybe not for you, it's going to be a greater transformation because my body needs special help. Not only is there going to be a great change, there's going to be a great conquest. When, verse 54, the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But Christ came and defeated it all. There's an incredible conquest that when we pass from this life into eternal life, guess what? These bodies will be transformed and we will be eternally, spiritually, physically, everything will be changed. Because there's victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. But then notice there's a great confession. And that confession is says, but thanks be to God. Because when we get to heaven, 
we're going to give honor and glory and praise to him. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You're still a work in progress. And he's not done with you yet. And he is slowly, gradually sanctifying you to reflect and to represent the image and the likeness of Jesus. And one of these days, he'll be, he'll be finished with you. But not until the last trumpet blows and the dead in Christ rise. And those of us who remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds and we'll be forever, forever changed. It's then that these perishable bodies will put on the imperishable. So let's take a look at one last little point as we consider closing our study today. Have you unwrapped the gift of Christmas? The wait is over. Salvation is here. The way is clear, and his name is Jesus. The war has been finished. He won that battle on the cross where he died for your sin against God. And you can win today by placing your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. Do you need to do that today? For this baby that we celebrate at Christmas time, wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger in Bethlehem, was God's gift to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. This is, this is not all there is. You were created to spend eternity somewhere. And I hope that somewhere is in heaven. For God's gift to you is found in the baby that we celebrate during Christmas. Let's pray.